Good morning. My name is Angel Roman. I'm a assistant pastor and church planning apprentice at a church in Lake Nona, about a, an hour or so west of here. Uh, and it's a great honor and privilege to be able to be here with you all sharing God's Word. I've been here once, and this is such a warm uh, congregation, and it's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, what I'll do is um, I'm going to read our sermon text from Psalm 34. For, for those of you who like to know ahead of time, I will briefly reference 1 Samuel 21 and John 19, if you want to keep tabs on that, but I won't read those uh, through the sermon. Uh, but I'll read Psalm 34. I'll pray for us one more time. Uh, we can always do with more prayer, uh, and then we'll begin. All right. so this is the word of the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes us boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, and those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek, seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and, the ear, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray one more time. Almighty and gracious God in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that your word will go out and not return in vain, that it will do the work that you would have it do, that here and now you would speak to us, that you would be with us, that you would mold us continually into the image of Christ according to your word. Lord, that any shortcomings in what I say would be overcome by your power and by your spirit, that you would still work in the lives of your people according to your word and all for your name's sake. Amen. Uh, Psalm 34 is in, in many ways about the goodness of God. I think, you know, one of the most powerful arguments against belief in God is the problem of evil. And the reason why it's powerful, it's not because it's a really good argument, but because experientially, right, when we go through tough times, we are more tempted to um, not trust in the Lord. To think that evil maybe is the greatest thing out there. And we mentioned some of those things earlier today. And so that's why that the problem of evil holds such great power. 
Now, a problem of evil uh, at its most basic level can be described with this syllogism. If God exists and he is good, then there would be no evil. But there is evil. So either God does not exist, or if he does exist, he's not good. And in many ways, actually, the Psalms across the board wrestle with this very issue. You have the psalmist constantly crying out to God about this very issue. Specifically, you can think of some of the Psalms of lament. Uh, Psalm uh, 88 really stands out to me because it's a weird moment where the psalmist kind of accuses God of causing all his problems. And it gives us words that we can use as we cry out to the Lord and wrestle with the evil in our world. But unlike Psalm 88, this Psalm, Psalm 34, it calls us to look at the problem of evil from a completely different perspective. To see even in our pain and in our suffering, the fact that God is good. That his goodness can be uh, observed, it can be displayed even in our uh, sufferings, even in evil. So, I mean, if you're taking notes, that's really the main point, the big idea of this psalm, that God's goodness is often most on display for us when we take refuge in him. God's goodness is most on display for us actually in the midst of evil, when we turn to him and take refuge in him. And so we'll begin looking at the psalm. The psalmist begins by saying that he's going to bless the Lord. He's going to praise him at all times. We might overlook that, but that's actually a starking claim. He's going to praise the Lord not just in the good times. He's going to bless the Lord even in the bad times. And what, what motivates him to say that? We'll, we'll look at that in just a second. So he says he's going to praise him continually. He's going to boast in the Lord. And he invites the humble to hear and be glad. Why are the humble to be glad? Well, again, we'll explore that in a second. And then the psalmist invites all of us to join with him and exalt the name of the Lord. He doesn't mention this explicitly here but in verse 3, but assuming at all times. Because later in the psalm, we're going to see that the psalmist is going to wrestle with this idea of God's goodness in the midst of the bad times. So let's explore, explore that, explore God's goodness, right? If you're taking notes, this is the first point. In the first 10 verses, we're going to look at God's deliverance and how it serves as a sign of God's goodness. Because the psalmist is going to think about, remember, recall, share about God's deliverance. And we're going to see that God is actually good to us when he delivers us in the midst of our troubles, God's deliverance is a sign of his goodness. And this is an incredibly important truth for our understanding of the Bible, for our understanding of the gospel. This is a a basic kind of truth across the Bible's story. And this psalm highlights that in a quite unique way. This is an acrostic psalm. What that means is that from verse 1 all the way to 21, not quite in verse 22, every line in the Hebrew begins with the next Hebrew letter, starting with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, the next line begins with bait, right? And so on and so forth. All the way down to verse 21 where it ends with Tav, the last uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And this is not the only acrostic poem in the Bible. You can think of like Psalm 119, Psalm 25. There are other places where this is the case. But the fact that this is an acrostic poem and it highlights such a basic truth of the Bible led a lot of commentators in the Reformation era to refer to this psalm as the ABCs of the Bible. 
Like this psalm is the ABCs of the Bible that we ought to hold near and dear to our heart, that ought to be written in our hearts. This truth that God's deliverance is a sign of his goodness ought to be written in our hearts. We ought to never forget about it. And actually, let's take a look at how the psalmist does that, how he, he writes these truths in his heart and shares them with us by reading verses 4 to 7 together. The psalmist says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Notice the psalmist begins after asking us to join with him in praising God, begins by remembering a time that he sought the Lord and the Lord delivered him. And if the title of the psalm is any use, the titles of the psalm are that little portion, especially if you have an ESV Bible, you'll see this right above verse one. There's a title to a psalm. Now the titles, they're probably not original to the psalms, but these are like early commentary on the psalms. When, when Jewish scribes and Hebrew scribes were putting together the books of the Psalms, they would write these titles to help people remember what these Psalms were about. And if this title is true, this title refers to an event that happened in David's life in 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is a really interesting event that the psalmist would remember when he's thinking about God's deliverance. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David is in trouble. Saul is after him. And if you know anything about the story of David, King Saul is after him for a time because David is God's elect king. But he's on the run from Saul, and he's seeking refuge. And he goes to a city called Goth, and he uh, seeks refuge from the king of Goth. And for a time, the king of Goth lets him seek refuge there. But after some time, the king there uh, becomes suspicious of David, and he thinks that maybe David is up to no good there. He's just going to cause more trouble. And so uh, David begins to worry that perhaps this king is going to persecute him in some way, And so he comes up with a genius plan to pretend to be insane. He starts acting crazy. And by acting crazy, the king of God just kind of lets him go, just releases him, says doesn't want anything to do with him. And so David goes and leaves, and he's on the run. And it seems like as he's penning the psalm, he's remembering these events from 1 Samuel 21. And that's really quite interesting because at the time, David is the one that comes up with the plan. There's no hints in 1 Samuel 21 that this is kind of divinely ordained, that God is delivering him. But as David remembers this time, he realizes that God was good to him in a really difficult time of his life. And it wasn't just that he came up with an ingenious plan to, be, to act crazy. It was that God had been good to him and had delivered him in that time. And so the psalmist remembers that there was a time that he sought the Lord. He prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered him and delivered him from all his fears. I, you know, the fears here are, He's afraid of the king who can really harm him. So God delivered him. But then in verse 6, the psalmist continues, and now he recalls the story of somebody else, or maybe himself, but he's talking about it as if it was somebody else. There was this poor man, and that poor man, he cried out to God, and God heard him too. And God also saved him and delivered him out of all his troubles. This is significant because David is saying, this is not something special about me, that God would deliver me from all my problems. Actually, God does this for his people all the time. There was this poor guy whom God delivered as well, you see. He's encouraging us to think about God's deliverance of his people. And then in verse 7, he makes this reference to the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord sometimes seems to be a direct reference to God himself. 
right? Sometimes he appears and he receives worship as if it was God himself. Or it could maybe be just an angel of the Lord. What, whatever the angel of the Lord is, God has set up someone to encamp, to set tent around his people, to protect them. The New Living Translation is a little bit loose, but it's quite helpful here. It says that God becomes a guard to his people here in verse 7. The reason why the psalmist is remembering these events and sharing them with others is because this is the normal pattern of how God works with his people. He sets up guard around them. He sets up tent around them and protects them in the midst of their troubles. We can say in some sense that God's goodness is for his people, is displayed when he is there with his people. Let's continue reading verses 8 through 10. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. This reference to young lions seems to be a reference to the wicked that would be mentioned later on. Uh, So I just mentioned that to clarify. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You see here, the psalmist now invites us again not just to praise the Lord, but to taste and to see the Lord's goodness. This is a powerful kind of metaphor, you know, because goodness obviously is not something you can put in your mouth and taste or something material that you can observe and look at and scientifically uh, uh, observe, but, but it is a metaphor for what you can do with God's goodness. You can experience it the way you experience taste. You could desire it, and you could, you could know it the way you know things that you see, right? And the psalmist is vividly inviting us to taste, to desire, to experience, to see and know God's goodness. He's inviting us to do that in the midst of trouble, right? He's inviting us to do that when he delivers us. When I was a kid, I was a really, really picky eater. Maybe some of you could relate to this. Um, But I was a very, very picky eater. I didn't like to taste stuff. I would just look at things and be like, "I I don't like that. My mom's like, come on. There's no way you know whether or not you like that. You haven't even tasted it. And she would say something along the same lines of what the psalmist would say. She would say, this is actually really good. Why don't you taste it and see for yourself how good it really is? Now, the truth of the matter is that sometimes I would taste it and not see for myself. Things were not as good as she made them out to be. Right? But other times they were good. But you see, the difference between my mom and that food is that food and people can sometimes let you down. They're not always good. But the Lord is always good. And so when the, ta- the psalmist invites us to taste and see his goodness, anytime you experience the Lord, you will experience him as good because he is good, always good. Now notice the order too. Come taste and see. Uh, this order uh, through the centuries as uh, commentators and, and theologians thought about this text they reflected on the order. They, they, they thought it was quite significant that the psalmist invites us first to taste before we see. And if we think of the metaphor, first to experience before we know his goodness. And this actually makes a lot of sense out of David's recalling and retelling of 1 Samuel 21. It's very likely that he didn't, uh, at the moment, realize that God was answering his prayer. But with a little bit of recollection, he realized that God really had answered his prayer. He had delivered him. He had experienced God's goodness before he came to know it. I think that's, all, that's often the case with us as well, especially those of us who've been Christians for a long time, who've been in the church for a long time, and believers for a long time. 
we could begin to assume that this is just a normal way of things, that we got ourselves to certain places. And it's not until we sit down and start thinking back that our lives, how far we've come, all the difficulties we've overcome, we begin to notice and see that God has been good to us, constantly delivering us from our troubles. Uh, and in fact, you know, if you are a believer, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter, kind of quoting this text, that in Christ, you have tasted God's goodness. He refers to God's people as those who have tasted God's goodness in the past tense. But the fact that you are a believer means that you have already tasted God's goodness. This text is also a really wonderful and rich text for uh, communion. You know, in communion, not only do we physically taste bread and wine or grape juice, uh, but we begin to uh, remember God's goodness to us in the past, in Christ, on the cross. We are nourished in our faith in the present as we taste, experience God's goodness to us even now in the midst of our troubles. And we're given faith and hope for God's goodness in the future. And the truth of the matter is, friends, that this psalm in many ways invites you to remember that God has been good to you, that he has delivered you already by the perfect sacrifice of his only begotten son. The gospel is all about God's goodness in an evil world. That video uh, shown earlier greatly, I think, describes that, right? We were in trouble. Sin, death, and Satan are great enemies. They were surrounding us. They uh, were uh, oppressing us. We were lost and blind. We were suffering from the oppression of sins. We were slaves to death. It feels even today that we're still slaves to death. Not a single one of us will escape it, will we? What a world that we live in. We cause suffering and endure suffering. We cause suffering and endure suffering. If we just begin to list off some of the, some of the things that we experience on a day-to-day basis, the picture is grim, right? Cancer. Uh, my, my grandfather was recently diagnosed with a, um, a form of terminal cancer. Cancer. A friend of mine, suicide. A friend of mine committed suicide recently as well. Uh, hunger, poverty, murder, uh, the amount of sexual sin we see in our day and age, just pain, suffering, injustice. We begin to look around our world. I don't watch the news, but I've been told if you watch the news, you begin to feel it a little bit more. What a world that we live in. It's a grim picture. But friends, the good news of the gospel lies in a word, uh, two words, but God. But God so loved the world, the same Sick and sin-filled, twisted world, the same rebellious world, that world that God loved. And he sent his only son so that all those who believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. Or in the words of our psalm, we could say, would be blessed, like verse 8. You know, the word blessed means something like being perfectly satisfied or happy. But those who believe in him would be perfectly happy or satisfied. So they would have no lack, verse 9, so that they would lack no good thing, verse 10, so that their faces would be radiant, they would not be put to shame, verse 5, so that they would be delivered from all their fears, verse 4. These are good news that broken and rebellious creatures of God would taste and see his goodness. This is good news. This is good news. Uh, in, In previous eras, it was very common for Christians to observe God's remarkable grace to us, and that even though he is invisible, we see him all the time in his deliverance and the way he shows up for us, the way he answers our prayers. God, this God, 
The God of Psalm 34 is worthy of all of our praise. He is worthy of praise in all times, the good and the bad. And so with the psalmist, I encourage all of you to exalt his name together. Now, this psalm is in many ways an invitation for us to do three things, to call for us to do three things, especially these first 10 verses. They call us to first remember. By the psalmist recalling, he's calling us to remember. God has been good to you. There have been moments in your life that you've cried out desperately and God has shown up. Remember those moments. Do not ever forget. But it's also a call for us to reenact and rehearse, right? It's kind of what we do at church every day. We, or every Sunday, we sing about God's goodness and deliverance, don't we? We reenact and rehearse the good things he has done for us. We hear it in his word. This is what we ought to be doing in our fellowship together, reminding each other of his goodness to us, being God's goodness to each other, rehearsing God's goodness. And it's also a call to redefine our definition of good. God's goodness is found in the fact that God is sharing his perfect, beautiful life with sinful creatures, rescuing them from their sins and suffering. God's goodness is um, displayed for us in his deliverance, and it's displayed in and through us as we spend time with one another. Goodness is not in this world, theoretically, I guess we could talk about it as the absence of evil, but in this world, it's not the absence of evil. It's the presence of the God who is making all things right, you see. So this psalm calls us to remember, to reenact or rehearse, and to reorient ourselves. Now, I want, us to, I want to call attention to something that's popped up already, but it's going to be a prominent feature of the second half of our psalm. Is this phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's not been clear yet, but it will become clear in the second half of our psalm what fear has to do with God's goodness, with God's deliverance. And so I want us to take a look at that now. And the way it's going to become clear, actually, starting in verse 11, something I want to point out is that in verse 11, the psalmist shifts to addressing his audience as children. This is what kind of biblical wisdom teachers would do, or Jewish wisdom teachers would do to the disciples. Their disciples would be called children. Um, this is one of the reasons why Jesus calls his disciples his children. This is one of the reasons why Proverbs chapter 1 begins by addressing the hearer as my child, right? Because Proverbs is about to give us wisdom, because Jesus came and preached wisdom. This psalm is about to give us some wisdom. And that wisdom is going to directly reflect or teach us what the fear of the Lord is. And what we'll discover, if you're taking notes, this is the second point, the last point, is that in order to experience God as refuge, we must fear him. Fear of the Lord is a crucial component to, uh, to our experience of God's goodness and of God as our refuge. And the psalmist is going to break that down for us beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read 11 to 14, and, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Okay, so what is the fear of the Lord? The psalmist is about to tell us. And look at how he starts this with this interesting question. What man is there who desires life? It's a rhetorical question. Presumably, everybody desires life, right? And loves many days that he may see good. Who out there wants to live a long, good, happy life? All of us, right? Now, he's going to tell us how we could do that, how we live a long and happy life. Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. 
Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Interesting. So in order to live a good life, we need to do things like keeping our tongue from evil. So we need to watch the way we speak. And we need to watch the way we live. We need to turn away from evil and do good. Now, reading that can make us feel like, or, uh, sorry, how do I say this a different way? A quick glance at verses 13 and 14 might make it sound to us like the key to success, the key to a good life, is just being a really good person, right? Doing a lot of good things. Now, this is a part of it for sure. But if we pay closer attention to what this is uh, um, talking about, we'll realize that holiness is not here defined, or fear of the Lord is not here defined as just being a good person. It's actually defined as repentance. Notice, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit is actually contrasted with seeking peace and pursuing it. So, turn away from this way of talking and turn towards this way of talking. And then verse 14, the first line, turn away from evil, turn away from this way of doing things and do good and turn into this way of doing things. That's the language of repentance. Turn from one thing and unto something better. The psalmist defines or gives us a vision for what it means to fear the Lord and to live the good life, to be holy in terms of repentance. Holiness in this life, we can say, starts and ends with repentance. Martin Luther in his 95 Thesis starts by saying that repentance is the entirety of the Christian life. Our experience of salvation ought to be, according to Psalm 34, one of continual conversion. We like to talk about conversion as a one thing, one-time thing that happened to us. And a lot of us have that one moment, right, where our eyes were open and we began to see the beauty of Christ for the first time. But actually, the Christian life is about continual conversion, continual repentance, continually turning away from idols, away from evil, and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, we think about the word fear, repentance is probably the most fitting act for someone who fears, right? It's only out of a healthy fear of the Lord, a recognition of his power, his might, and his goodness, that we come to a place where we realize that what we need to do is let go of everything else and turn to him alone. Holiness and rest go hand in hand. When John Calvin defines what it means to know God, he says at first it means that you believe that he exists and that he's good. That's not enough to know God. Lots of people do that. The Bible says even the demons do that and they will perish. John Calvin says you have to not only know and believe that God is real and that he is good, but you also have to realize that God is real and good for you. True piety, John Calvin says, is to love God, and loving God is about realizing that God is real and good and that he is all of that for you. It's another way of saying that to know God you have to know that he is good to us in spite of our sin and rebellion, in spite of all the things in this world that pull us away from him. So the psalmist continues. He defines the fear of the Lord, the good life, as a life of repentance. Uh, we can go on and on there, but he, he moves on 
continuing to talk about, uh, to contrast the good life, the life of the righteous, with the life of the wicked. And this is something, again, that you see in, uh, in wisdom literature in the Bible. Psalm 1 describes the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and so on. He, he'll do that here, starting in verse 15. So let's read verse 15 to 21 and continue to see what it means to live the good life. Life of repentance where God is our refuge. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ear, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Notice, God is looking at both the righteous and the evil. He sees everyone. His face is towards everyone. But the way his face is towards everyone is very different, isn't it? The repentant one, the one who lives the good life, is living the good life because when God puts his eyes and ears towards them, it's to hear them. It's for their good. But when God faces the wicked, those who do not repent, who continue to follow the way of evil, it's only to cut them off, cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is quite significant. It means that living the good life has consequences even beyond death. The memory of them is cut off from the earth. 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers him out of all their troubles. Again, God's face towards the righteous is what one commentator calls God's welcoming face. His face towards the wicked is what the same commentator calls God's unwelcoming face. The face of isolation and exile. The face of disapproval. God delivers them out of all his troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Notice the description now, the righteous. The righteous are the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. Again, being righteous is not about being sinlessly perfect. If you are in Christ, if you are called righteous by God, it's not because you are emotionally, morally, or spiritually superior to anyone else. It's actually because you recognize how morally and emotionally and spiritually depraved you are. That you are crushed, broken, lowly, poor, right? The wicked, they boast before God as if they're superior. The righteous, they repent. They realize that their own way is not as good as the way of the Lord, is it? They realize that their way leads to destruction, and they repent. Verse 19 and 21. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Notice, the the way of the righteous is not a way free of affliction. It would be a lie if as a preacher I stood up and said, come follow Jesus because everything's going to be made right. You're going to instantly, you're going to have a better job, a better wife, a better life. You're always going to be happy. Not a single trouble will follow you. Sometimes when we share the gospel with friends and we're excited about all the ways that God has delivered us, we make it sound that way, don't we? But the way the Bible talks about the life and the way of the righteous, it says that many are his afflictions. The way of repentance still involves a number of afflictions. This is one reason why this psalm is quoted in 1 Peter, because 1 Peter is all about how God's people are in affliction. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the difference is the way the Lord shows up to our affliction. To the affliction of the righteous, the Lord delivers them out of them all. But affliction, on the contrary, will slay the wicked. It will condemn them. Now, this means that if I do not have the hope and refuge of God, my afflictions will destroy me. Despair is my only option. But for those who turn away from their own sinful ways and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their refuge, they will be delivered out of all their afflictions. Now, uh, John chapter 19 actually quotes uh, this verse here, um, verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, and attributes them uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? At the cross, it's a really kind of interesting and weird way to, to quote this psalm. At the cross, it was normal that the legs of those crucified would be broken. John notices and wants us to know that even though they broke the legs of the people crucified around Jesus because Jesus was dead, they skipped over him. And this fulfills Psalm 34. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. But I actually think that the reason why this... Uh, um, Psalm is reference is much deeper than just the fact that his bones were not physically broken. That is just a clue to the gospel writer, to John, that something else is going on here. You see, when the afflictions, uh, afflictions came upon Christ, including our afflictions, they did slay him as if he was one of the wicked. He was condemned on the cross as if he was one of the wicked. He suffered the penalty for sin on the cross. And yet, even in death, God delivers him. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the truly righteous one. He is the reason why God is good to you, even in the midst of evil. He is the ultimate act of deliverance, his life, death, and resurrection. And in his resurrection, this psalm is vindicated. God delivers the righteous out of all their afflictions. If you are in Christ, even if you must suffer death, you will be delivered and risen again with Christ to be with God forever. The good life of repentance leads to the ultimate experience of God's goodness, a future with no eat more evil, no more pain, no more suffering, according to Revelation chapter 21. This is the goodness of God to sinners like you and I. That he would deliver us from all of our afflictions. And I, and I think this is the point of John quoting this right after his death on the cross and right before the resurrection. So that we would go back to Psalm 34 and realize this is the goodness of God to us sinners. What a great goodness. Well, we finish out our Psalms, uh, verse 22 seems to be something of a summary statement. It's not, it's not part of the acrostic poem. And this is how the psalmist summarizes his key point, his main point. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. He redeems their life. He buys it back. This is quite significant considering that Jesus Christ died before he resurrected, right? That we might even, most of us, if Christ has not come back, experience death before we are resurrected. But none of those 
who take refuge in him will be condemned. Christ was condemned so that you would not be. So that God's goodness would be displayed to us with its full force. Not only do we taste God's goodness here, we taste it um, perfectly in the resurrection. And this is very deeply connected to the fear of the Lord. If you've missed out on it so far, I want to tell you a little bit about um, a young adult uh, book novel called Freak the Mighty. Maybe some of you read it in school or your kids might have read it in school. That's where I read it. Uh, And in Freak the Mighty, it it narrates the story, the relationship between these two boys and their struggles. Um, It's it's, it's a really interesting book full of struggles. But one of the things I want to highlight about this book is that the two boys, Max is one of the two boys. Max, um, he gets bullied because he's a lot bigger than all the other boys his age. Not only is he a lot bigger than all the other boys his age, he looks a lot like his father who is a murderer. His face is kind of scary. He looks like somebody who has killed people. So he gets bullied, and he has very low self-esteem. He has no friends. Uh, his next-door neighbor, somebody who moves uh, next door to him, is this uh, young boy named Kevin. Kevin, they call him freak. They bully him for other reasons. Uh, he uh, has to walk with crutches. Uh, he can't walk without them. He wears braces on his legs. So he gets bullied for other reasons. But this story, this book narrates their relationship. They become friends. And there's this specifically powerful moment in the book where uh, Max carries uh, Kevin, freak, on his shoulders. And as some kids come to bully him, uh, Kevin starts telling Max what to do, and Max fends him off. He protects Kevin because Max is a lot bigger than all the other boys, isn't he? And together, they became, become known as Freak the Mighty. That's the title of the book. Now, what's quite significant about this and what, how, how this deeper relates to the point of Psalm 34 is that while everyone was afraid of Max and bullied him, they saw it as a weakness, Kevin realized that the fact that Max was big and scary was actually a strength. If Max was for Kevin, was his friend, then Max being big and scary was a refuge to Kevin, wasn't it? And this is the point of fearing the Lord. God is big and scary. He judges the wicked. He is mighty and powerful and controls all things. But his big and scariness, the reasons for us to fear him are actually a good thing for us. They're a strength. They're not a weakness. We fear the Lord as those who recognize that God is big and scary for us, that our pain, our suffering, our afflictions are not bigger than him, that he is more powerful than anything we can go through. He will truly deliver us from them all. And so, friends, I invite you to, if you've ever struggled with the presence of evil in this world and in your own life, to reconsider that. Allow the psalm to help shape your view of what God is doing in the world. Evil is present. It's almost nonsensical to argue about whether or not God is real or good based on the presence of evil. But we can taste, we can test, we can experience our God to see if he truly is good. That is found in the deliverance that he offers for us in Christ. I encourage you all to fear him, to seek him, to trust him. Because our only hope in life and in death is that we belong to him. And in Christ, he is making all things new. Let's pray. Almighty and good God, 
we praise you and thank you for your great goodness for us, for your great deliverance of us in Christ, for all the little ways that you've answered our prayers that we've perhaps overlooked. God, help us remember your goodness. Help us rehearse and reenact. Help us share your goodness with one another and help us truly see how good you are. Help us hope and have faith in the midst of our struggles, knowing that one day even death will be fully overcome. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, but we will be with you forever.